highly anticipated sequel that some say is better than the first, plus permission to stop pretending to be happy all the time. This is Chapter 204 of WCBS Author Talks. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. Coming up, I chat with Man Booker Prize-winning author Marlon James about the second book in his Dark Star fantasy series. Then, therapist Whitney Goodman explains why our negative feelings are just as important as the positive ones. I hate to admit it, but sometimes book two of trilogies can feel like placeholders. Sure, there's some action and maybe a reveal or two, but usually they serve as a bridge between the first book and whatever plot's going to be wrapped up in the third. But that is totally not the case with the Dark Star trilogy from prize-winning author Marlon James. Unlike other three-book series, this one is totally unique in that each book tells the same story from a different character's point of view. Book two in the series is titled Moon Witch Spider King and is already getting rave reviews for its mashup of African folklore, fantasy, and even a touch of the comic books. I got to ask Marlon about why he chose to tell his story in the way in which he does. I think because, uh, um, one, I was probably watching Rashomon way too much. Um, and I've also been, you know, I've always been interested in how different people see the same story. Um, and there are all sorts of sources for that. There was a Rashomon thing. I remember once reading this reporter, and, um, and journalism is a huge influence on me as a writer the supporter who was doing a story on a lynching and he tried a tactic first where he asked people, tell me about the lynching. And he noticed the white residents and the black residents were all saying different thing. It was all saying roughly the same thing, almost kind of prepared. And then he went back and go, tell me about 1938. And that's when the stories went way off course. Uh, and I realized that's, you know, when you, depending on the questions you ask, you get radically different versions of the same story because people have their biases, they have their prejudices, but they also have what emotionally resonates with them. And I knew that the things that resonate with Sogolan would have been very different. And I was very interested in that, more so than doing uh, part two that picks up where part one left off. I think that would have been too easy to do. It's also great for readers because we can just jump into book two without having read the first and not feel like we've really missed anything. Right. Um, and also, you know, um, book, you know, I think also, even though nobody would probably say it, you can also start with who you feel most sympathetic about first. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think my mom would be super interested in reading. I want to join 77 year old black woman. And that's a sure she cares that much about a young male adventurer trying to, you know, you know, experience the world. So it's, it's, um, it opens up readers to enter the story in different ways. And it's great too. I mean, just the fact that this is a female narrator in a genre that really is male dominant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And even sometimes when the women are in the genre, they're still in relation to men. Um, it's still, even sometimes when it's the stories about the child who shall lead us, it's almost always a boy child. Yeah, uh, Sogolan certainly stands in contrast to that. I think Sogolan is somebody who, who, I mean, she almost has no choice. She has to sort of make her way in the world instead of waiting for the world to do things to her. What struck me most about her character, what, what really resonated is that 
you know, she comes from, from nothing. She, she's treated awfully from, from the minute she's born because of circumstances out of her control. And yet she really has a very strong sense of self that I think a lot of people, a lot of women take a really long time to learn. And she seems to know who she is from the get-go. Mm-hmm. Part of that also comes from people continually insisting on who she isn't. And, um, and I think that in some ways um, forces her to really rely on herself. She learns a very, you know, pretty early age that um, people will disappoint you or people are selfish or people will use you for their own purpose. In fact, people keep asking about what is her use. And, you know, she learns pretty early that the only use she needs is use to herself. And, um, and yeah, it, it's, it's a very hard lesson, but she learns it really early and that's what saves her. And the power of somebody's name too, because this whole play that, oh, you're the girl with no name. She's like, no, I, I have a name. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she named herself. You know, one of the things about it is, even though we keep calling her a 177 year old, which she's actually, uh, she's actually older than that. Um, she started to count her years from the time she named herself. So even the way, even her age is something she controls. Now, your trilogy has been described as an African Game of Thrones. Do you find that to be an, an apt description of what you've set up to do? Probably not, but it, I am to blame. So since I'm the one who said it. <laughs> Um, I think I was using the, the, the way the, the, I, I use that comparison because one of the things I love that George R. R. Martin does is that he writes these very complicated and, you know, quite frankly, very adult stories that refuse to let go of make-believe. And um, I think we still have this idea that, that um, fantasy, once we, we come across anything um, that's not quote-unquote realistic, that we're in the realms of, realm of child's play. And his books were a big rebuttal against that. So that's kind of the comparison I was drawing for. But I'm sure there are some Game of Thrones fans going, this is nothing like Game of Thrones. <laughs> well, you know, I guess everybody always assumes that if, if you like to read fantasy or if you're going to pick up a fantasy book, it's because you're looking for some sort of escape from the real world. And while, yes, you've created this, this entire world where that's unlike our own, it's not necessarily an escape to a better world. No. Um, this is a thing, and I think the, the, the best fantasy novels realize that, that there is really no such ideal world. You, no matter how idealized you want the world to be, people are still people. And, and people are, you know, we, we as people are just remain so, so dangerously flawed and sometimes just plain dangerous. Now, I know that there are always going to be people who are going to wait for the movie to come out. Because when they see a, a 500, almost 600 plus page book, they're like, uh, no, I can't, I can't do this. And I know that Michael B. Jordan has signed on for the adaptation of your first book, Black Leopard, Red Wolf. Are there any updates you can give us? Um, not really. Of course, the, 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 thing about, the thing about COVID, of course, is that COVID has set everything back two years. <laughs> so it's... Um, so we're 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 still moving ahead. We're we're um, the thing of of course the writing stage is one of the hardest stages because how do you condense six hundred plus pages into you know a, a two hour movie? So we're still sort of finalizing the script, and from then we'll we'll move on. Hopefully, this pandemic is easing off, and we can just get back to work. 
Are you involved with that screenwriting process? Absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, it would be really hard to see something you've worked so hard on ripped to shreds in order to, to get it down for, for timing purposes. Yeah. I, I, that whole thing, in, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm the one who's always advising students, kill your, you have to kill your darlings. I'm like, I, I can't be around for that type of slaughter. <laughs> um, so as we've been saying, this is a trilogy. Can you give us any sort of look or peek into who the next book's point of view is going well, to be? From? That is a secret. Not even my editor knows. Oh, okay. So it's going to be a surprise for him. I'm not, I'm not even giving him hints. And does your editor appreciate that? Or does it make them really, oh, really nervous? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think so. Editors like to have a lot of control. <laughs> yeah, they're like, you know, I've been with you through all of this. We do a podcast like, together. What are we going to talk about? So I was like, nope, not telling anybody. Now, I... I'm not going to press you for any more details because mm-hmm. we all want to be surprised. But when you, I know you're, you're probably in the middle of writing it. it do you think there will be a point where you're going to take a, a, a step back and, and look at the order that you've put these books out in and thought, Hey, maybe I should have mixed it up a little bit. I don't know. Maybe. Um, I still think, you know, um, it was a good move to put out Black Leopard first. And the third one, um, I haven't actually even thought about it yet. So uh, I think um, I go by the characters that sort of strike me first. And, and in a lot of ways, uh, Tracker's story ended up being first just because he's the one who came to my imagination first. But um, I think um, at some point I may actually do it myself, reread it, reread the trilogy in a different order than I wrote it. And I'm going to guess by uh, the, the stories that you've written that you have quite an imagination. <laughs> And you know, was, cla- nerd, and was like so classic close. fantasy something you were always drawn to or you just? I, I was always drawn to, I mean, I would say initially superheroes, actually, comics. And to me, comics are also fantasy. Um, it's, you know, it, it is make-believe. It is a world that's not quite like ours. And I've always been drawn to that. I mean, as a, you know, um, growing up in Jamaica in the 70s and 80s, I was very much a suburban kid, like every other kid in the world growing up in the 70s and 80s. Um, you know, we, we all grew up on Sesame Street and we all were watching Knight Rider <laughs> <laughs> and being bored and listening to Madonna. Um, so, you know, I, I, I did gravitate towards those worlds because they were just so unlike the ones, the one that I was in. And now you've gone and created one that I don't think anyone has ever thought of before, which makes it s- such a unique read. Uh, we've been talking with Marlon James. The new book is Moon Witch, Spider King. Thank you for your time today. Thank you for having me. Are you one of those people who always feels the need to put a positive spin on situations? You know, the type of person to say, hey, I lost my job, but at least I have more time now to pursue my dream. Or maybe you're the type of person who says those things to people going through a difficult time because you don't want them or you to feel bad? If you said yes to either of those situations, then you're a victim of toxic positivity. But guess what? You don't have to be. In her new book, Toxic Positivity, Keeping It Real in a World Obsessed with Being Happy, therapist Whitney Goodman reveals just how damaging this mindset can be to ourselves and our relationships. But most importantly, she shares what we can do to fix it. 
The first question and the big question is for people who don't know, what is toxic positivity? Yeah, so toxic positivity is the unrelenting pressure to be happy all the time and always be pursuing happiness no matter what the circumstances. Your book is full of examples. Can you give us an example if people are still, huh, I'm not sure if that applies to me or if I'm even doing that myself? Yeah, I think the most um, relatable example is when somebody's going through grief, a lot of us might respond with, you know, everything happens for a reason. They're in a better place now. They wouldn't want to see you sad. And so we're responding to someone who's in distress with a lot of these platitudes that are just like shutting the conversation down and trying to push them to look on the bright side before they might be ready for that. I think a lot of people might think, you know, there's nothing wrong with with trying to be happy or trying to put a positive spin on things. Why can this get this kind of positivity get to the point where it's detrimental to a person's mental health? Yeah. So I see it become detrimental in a couple of ways. The first one is that it creates a lot of isolation. When I feel like you're always happy, you're never struggling. I am really unlikely to share what I'm going through as well, especially if when I do, I get shot down in that way. The other thing it does is that it forces us to suppress our emotions, which the research really shows that this has a lot of negative effects. And when we suppress our emotions for too long, they end up just coming out in other ways, whether it's drinking, you know, not sleeping, etc. It also upholds a lot of systems in our world that tend to keep people stuck um, and unable to actually experience the happiness that they want to experience. How did we get to this point of trying to make every negative situation, every negative uh, feeling, every negative experience something positive? So this is something that's been around for such a long time, and there have been criticisms of it in the past. Um, I think we saw it really come to be through religion, and now it's morphed into healthcare and wellness, et cetera. It's much easier to be around people that are happy and positive. It's much easier to control things when people are happy, that I think it became this obsession um, that if we can just keep everything happy, everything will be fine. And I think we're seeing now it's not working. Now, that all being said, you're not saying with this book or even in your practice as, as a therapist that we need to be negative all the time. No, not at all. And what's so funny is whenever I talk about toxic positivity, that's the first place people go. And it's such a prime example of like our binary black and white thinking, right? So positivity is not toxic. It's something that becomes toxic. And what I hope people take away from this is that positivity doesn't always fit. And there's also a lot of value in our complaints and in negativity. And if we can harness some of the power that can be found in that, we can actually probably experience a lot more happiness and connection with other people. I think your book probably comes at a perfect time. We're, we're, we're into like multi-year of a worldwide pandemic where people have been very isolated. People have been having to deal with with grief They've been, ha- they've been, you know, shut off from, from their friends. And you do see a lot of this stuff, you know, posted online, which is kind of the genesis of this book was, was your Instagram account and the things you were seeing on social media about, you know, hashtag blessed, hashtag good vibes, you know, hashtag grateful, all this kind of stuff. And it really like y- your book points out that it's okay if you're not handling this as, as positive as you think people think you should be handling it. Yeah. And, you know, that's when I saw such a resurgence of this was in the pandemic, because all of a sudden we were like, 
you have to handle this big traumatic event with a smile on your face. And as a therapist, I want to tell people like, you're not supposed to, or meant to handle this. Well, if you are great, but like, we have no preparation for something like this. Just in reading your book over these last couple of days, I've learned that I'm totally guilty of being toxically positive to, to flip it around in certain situations. And I find it helpful with the suggestions that you make in here about how to approach certain situations and what you can say in order to be supportive, but not necessarily positive or tox- like toxic positivity. Yeah, I think it's great that you can recognize that you see yourself in some of these. (laughs) I definitely have been guilty of them. I still am sometimes. I want people to realize that it's less about what you say and more about how you're with someone. How can you show them understanding, compassion, ask questions, listen? Those things go so much further than giving like this, you know, little platitude or piece of advice to help someone look on the bright side. It seems like it should be so intuitive and so simple. And yet it's not. Why do we have such a hard time with this? It's absolutely not even for me. And this is my job. Um, I think it's so painful to sit with people, especially people we love and care about that are in distress and not be able to fix it and not have control over it. And that's really what positivity culture promises, right? Like if you can harness the power of your thoughts, everything will be okay. And when we realize that it's not, it's very challenging. And so that feeling of distress is going to come up for you and that's normal. And I want people to realize like they can get through that with the other person and ride through it and come out the other side. I appreciate too that your book tackles not only how to deal with other people. It also talks about this, the self-talk and the sort of destructive things you can say to yourself where you're having a difficult time and you may couch it in, well, I'm just grateful that dot, 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 and realize how damaging that can be to you as well and your own feelings and emotions. Yes. So we always focus on like positive affirmations and speaking kindly to ourselves. But I find that this is often like so unattainable for a lot of people that What might be easier is when you are feeling something negative or difficult to say like, gosh, I'm having a really hard feeling. Like what might that be about? Or that makes sense that I'm feeling that way and not try to cover it up in gratitude or tell yourself that you should be grateful. Is that really the the best place for people to start? Like this, this like self-awareness is really the first step for, for people in terms of identifying this within themselves. Yeah, I think so. And kind of swallowing your pride and realizing like we all do this. It's something that's been ingrained in our culture, you know, for as long as we we can really remember, especially in the United States, that I find there's very few people that don't do this and kind of just saying like, okay, you know, this might not be the most helpful thing for all the people in my life. How can I learn to do better and ask people what's helpful for them? Do you think if we as individuals start to learn how to do that, we can maybe then counter where it has to happen system-wide, particularly in healthcare? Because I think that's really the, uh, an interesting segment of this book is, the, is how this works in healthcare and this whole idea of gaslighting people. A thousand percent. So if I start making space for your emotions and you start doing that for me, that really has a ripple effect, right? Because then we all start feeling more comfortable, more at ease and more validated by the people around us. And I think then that translates over into 
doctors, other wellness providers who have probably thought I'm doing the right thing this whole time. What I, I just want to wrap up the, this interview by asking you, what do you think is like the one thing people can do or that you want them to take away from this book and after or after listening to this interview and step away and be like, this is what I can do to to make a change? I think the biggest tool you can take away from this is the power of listening and asking questions and trying to start with that with yourself and with other people and see how much more powerful that is than using these different platitudes or sayings. And you as a therapist know how hard that can be. So you're not saying that this is something that's easy to do to go out there and listen, but to do something to try. Oh my gosh, it's it's so hard. And you can even say to people like, oh gosh, I'm sorry. I just slipped back into giving you that type of response. I really want to listen. You know, like call yourself out on it. And I guess that makes us a little bit more, feel a little bit more human, even though it seems like all of humanity does this. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And that's the main message of the book, right? Is we're all humans looking to be understood and heard by each other. Well, Whitney Goodman, thank you for jumping on Zoom with us to talk about your new book, Toxic Positivity, Keeping It Real in a World Obsessed with Being Happy. And everyone can follow you at uh, on Instagram at, at sitwithwit. Yes, thank you so much for having me. And that's where we close the book on this chapter. Next time, we dive into a psychological thriller that explores the bond between sisters and the allure of cults. Did I mention it has the ominous title of This Might Hurt? Until then, find us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS80Books and make sure you've subscribed to us in the Odyssey app. I'm Lisa Chernkovich.